This Week in Lectures in History, a discussion about women's political power in early America. York College professor Jacqueline Beatty discusses women's rights and changing political power during the American Revolution and the early years of the Republic. One of the most prominent ways that women were really engaged politically during the American Revolution um, were especially in um, organizing boycotts of British goods um, and in organizing what were called homespun bees, right? They were get together and organize to make homemade clothing um, while they were boycotting British goods. Professor Beatty also provides context to the political struggle that women living in the District of Columbia had to deal with, especially during the Jackson era. All right, so today we are going to talk about, as you see, uh, the intersection of topics of gender, sex, and politics in the early American Republic. So I think it'll be a good follow-up to a lot of what we've been discussing already and kind of get us ready to transition to uh, topics we have on the syllabus in the coming weeks. All right, so um, for lecture today, I think it's basically going to be in uh, about four parts, right? So I'm going to start talking about um, the changes that the American Revolution brought in terms of um, political power for women, um, both in terms of how they perceive their power um, and how society perceives their power as well. Um, I'm going to go through a couple of historians' conceptions of women's changing political power, especially in the early republic, um, and then I'll kind of talk about the backlash um, to those expanding political roles and political power. Uh, and then finally, I'll spend most of the time talking about a scandal in Andrew Jackson's cabinet. Um, we can maybe call it a sex scandal. It might be pushing it, but um, I think pretty compelling and a good example of uh, what we'll be talking about today, and in a lot of ways what we've already been talking about thus far this semester. Okay, so I want to argue that, right, there were not a whole lot of changes um, in terms of legal rights and status for women as a result of the American Revolution, um, but there are some important shifts that I think are noteworthy for us to pay attention to here um, that happened during and in the wake of the war. Um, and for those of you that have me in class for 111 and for the American Revolution, some of this is going to be familiar to you, but I think it's um, worthwhile to go through here. Right? So one of the most prominent ways that women were really engaged politically during the American Revolution um, were especially in um, organizing boycotts of British goods, um, and in organizing what were called homespun bees, right? They were they get together and organize to make homemade clothing um, while they were boycotting British goods, right? So this is a way in which some of that domestic power um, was really um, centered towards the revolution and making um, uh, or having an effect on the revolution in whatever way women could, right? Um, there is a really interesting example of a group of women in Philadelphia um, who are going to literally be knocking, going door to door, raising money for the Continental Army. Um, it's a really interesting story. Um, a woman named Esther DeBert Reed published this um, anonymous um, pamphlet um, justifying female patriotism, right? What she specifically called female patriotism um, and the organizing efforts of these women, right? Which some seem to believe were unfeminine, right? Going door to door in public asking for money wasn't necessarily the most feminine thing to be doing, right? And they raised a lot of money doing this. Uh, and what they wanted to do actually was pay the Continental soldiers 
and they were able to get in touch with George Washington. Reed had a connection, um, and he asked instead if they could use that money to buy materials for clothing and then make the clothing for uh, the soldiers because that's what they really, really needed. So some other gender dynamics we could unpack later. Um, There are certainly um, at least a few instances that we know of women who would disguise themselves as men and fight, Um, particularly in the Continental Army. There's one, um, probably the most famous example, is a woman named Deborah Sampson, um, who years later, decades later, um, would kind of go on tour and talk about her activities during the war and becomes quite famous doing so. Right, Um, And this may be surprising, um, but for a brief period of time, there were certain women in New Jersey who actually did have the right to vote. Okay, Um, This is limited, right? Um, In, I believe it's a 1776 New Jersey state constitution, um, has gender-neutral language about voters. Um, So we're talking about elite white women largely, right? Many of them are widows because they have a certain amount of property which enables them to vote. Um, And it would be a little more than 20 years that they are able to do this, to exercise their right to vote until New Jersey uh, changes the law and makes it explicitly a right of white men of property, right? And kind of closes that brief window of opportunity. Um, And if you are interested in this, um, the Museum of the American Revolution Um, I think they still have the the digital exhibit up and available if you're interested in exploring that more, right? Um, So some of these things are kind of temporary, right? And and part of the revolution itself, right, raising money for the army or boycotting British goods were particular to that historical moment. But what I think is, I mean, I would argue is most important is this language of rights, um, particularly the idea of natural rights and inalienable rights um, that are really circulating quite widely during the American Revolution, right? Uh, Most famously in the Declaration. Um, Women are not the only marginalized group in this period to really seize the language of rights for themselves. I think it's important to note, um, but I want to talk specifically about how important it was for women to come to a consciousness of themselves as rights-bearing individuals, right? That they had rights under the law, right? And those are probably not rights that we would recognize necessarily today in 2020. Um, We'd probably want them to push a little bit further. Um, But still, this is a necessary step for them to argue for an expansion of rights, to first understand themselves as rights-bearing individuals, okay? Um, And for our purposes today, I want us to think about politics um, as something beyond just voting and holding office, right? It's far more expansive than that. And if we confine our understanding of political power to voting, to holding office, then we're not just restricting ourselves, um, but we're restricting our understanding of history, too, and who is able to affect change in history, okay? Um, So... For example, one of these ways in which um, we can kind of think about a more expansive understanding of politics is this so-called out-of-doors political activity, which is um, precisely what it sounds like, right? Political activity that happened outside, right, in public spaces that really engaged uh, the public um, in these kinds of political activities, okay? Um, And I'll talk more about that in a minute, right? Um, 
And finally, I think this is also quite important and goes along with this idea of the rights language circulating. Um, women were both readers and writers of political essays, of political materials, right? Some of which are increasingly in the early republic really talking about women's rights as an issue, okay? Um, and one of those pieces that you may have heard about before is uh, pictured here on the upper right, um, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman um, by Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a British feminist. Um, but this obviously was printed and circulated quite widely um, and read um, by American women and, and men, I should say, for that matter. Right. Um, so I want to explore um, three different um, political roles for women that scholars have identified in this period, right? And the first of these uh, is the idea of female politicians, right? A term that is coined by historian Rosemary Zagari in her book, Revolutionary Backlash. Okay. Right? Um, and in some ways, this is the kind of legacy of, of what I've already been talking about, about women's political roles um, in the revolution, right? But it takes seriously women as political actors in their own right, right, the political power that they possessed, that they exercised, um, and not just relative to their association with men, right? Um, I think it's also really important for us to kind of forget what we know about the course of U.S. history, about what comes next, try to put ourselves in the shoes of people living in the late 18th, early 19th century, right? They had just won the Revolutionary War. Um, the 1780s are kind of a hot mess, right? Um, we tried the, uh, the Articles of Confederation, didn't work, started a new constitution, right? And there's a lot of uncertainty, essentially, about the future of this nation, right? Historically, democracies, republics don't really survive all that long. Um, so the founding generation was especially anxious about the future of the nation um, whose independence they had just won, right? The United States is new, it's young, and um, the nation's survival is not certain, right? So this causes a lot of anxiety among um, really the nation's leaders, I would say. Um, so what they kind of try to do very actively is try to create a new national identity somewhat from scratch, right? Because they have to sever... Um, the kind of political, cultural connections with Britain um, in enough distinction that they can form a nation that its citizens are allegiant to, right? That they are dedicated to, that they feel a kind of sense of patriotic nationalism towards, right? That's one way that they think the nation will survive, right? To, to cultivate a new national identity is, is very difficult, right? So we're going to see um, some scheming and also some ideas about, about how to get that done. Right. Um, so I want to argue, of course, that women are really a critical part of this. Right. Of course, they're half of the population. Um, but there are ways in which um, women themselves um, kind of take up this mantle, but also in ways in which society asks women right, to take up different roles um, to help um, bolster the nation in its earliest years. Right. Um, so these out of door pol political activities, for example, right, women were central participants in these um, events like parades or festivals, <clears throat> different organizations um, kind of fostered by the earliest political parties, the, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. Right. Um, 
they're trying to cultivate this sense of national unity, but also kind of partisan sentiment, of course, right, for their issues. Um, and women are a critical part of that, right? Um, right. Zagari is going to argue that um, with, of course, the brief uh, exception of New Jersey voters for a small window, right, the fact that women do not have the formal right to vote at this period in time may render them, in fact, impartial enough, um, or more impartial, certainly, um, than men who uh, are, by and large, have, have greater access to the vote, right? Um, they are more impartial because they do not have that access to the vote, right? That they could bring perhaps a more virtuous sense of civic duty to political activities, right? Because they are not maybe um, tainted by that partisanship that voters might be, right? Um, and, and Zagari will also argue, right, that women's very presence could confer a kind of validation or approval on men's activities, right? So this is both real and symbolic, right? Their presence is symbolic, um, but it also is a legitimating source to their political activities, right? And I think it's, it's really important to recognize that here in the early years of the Republic, that women's presence was meant to be this legitimating political force, right? They were a central part of this, okay? But um, it is not only in public, in these kind of popular politics where women are gonna gain power, right? Um, one notable shift here during and after the revolution um, is that many commentators, <clears throat> excuse me, are going to argue that women need greater access to formal education, okay? Um, one of the most vocal proponents of uh, women's expanded education is uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush from Philadelphia, who, if you've heard of him before, you may know he's famous for advocating for bloodletting. <clears throat> Not great, um, but also female education and abolition, right? Um, so Benjamin Rush, in this um, piece that's kind of in the background here, argued that the present times exhibit most honorable instances of female learning and genius. The superior advantages of boys' education are perhaps the sole reason of their subsequent superiority, right? So essentially what Rush is arguing here and what, what many um, women's rights advocates will argue is that women's um, perceived intellectual inferiority is not a result of some kind of natural or biological force, but instead because they have been prohibited to have the same kind of education as men, right? And this is what is, is attempted to be rectified here, okay? Um, this is still quite limited in scope, right? They're not arguing for universal women's education. Um, instead, these so-called ladies, young ladies academies, female academies that are going to be formed are really targeted at relatively elite young white women, right? Um, those who um, are pretty well off. Um, but there's also a kind of political purpose to this too, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, What's notable, too, about these female academies um, is that they're not only going to include in the curriculum 
these traditional so-called feminine arts like dance and music and sewing, those kinds of things, um, but also curriculum that had generally been geared towards young men or gendered as masculine, right, only appropriate for young men, such as history, um, science, geography, and arithmetic, to name a few, right? These more... Um, what we might call hard disciplines in some regard, um, but also um, disciplines that had been previously mostly the exclusive purview of men. Okay. Um, so uh, these justifications, right, for why women needed access um, to a kind of expanded education, right, besides the kind of philosophical arguments that, you know, of course women have this perceived intellectual inferiority because they haven't had the opportunity to be educated, right? Um, what else? Think about in the early republic, right, where anxieties are running high. Why else might there be a political value to women's education? Yeah, Cindy. Yeah, good, right? This is exactly this phenomenon that we're going to see that uh, historian Linda Kerber identifies in her book, Women of the Republic, right? This idea of Republican motherhood, okay? Right? And it's precisely as Sydney mentioned, right, that there is this, right, heightened anxiety about the future of the Republic. Um, and some will argue that the best way to ensure the future of the republic is to make sure that subsequent generations are prepared to be virtuous citizens, right? Especially virtuous leaders, right? So women themselves were uh, or needed to be educated so that they could educate their children, right? Both their sons and their daughters, I will say, right? Um, their sons to be the up-and-coming virtuous leaders and voters in the new republic, and their daughters, like them, to fulfill the role of Republican mothers, right? To cultivate um, that sense of virtue on through the generations. Okay. okay. Um, right, so this is obviously much more of a domestic role than those female politicians. Um, but it's important to note that this isn't the only domestic role that is going to be politicized for women. Um, we're also going to see the role of wife um, be politicized as well, right? And um, historian Jan Lewis uh, wrote an article uh, called The Republican Wife in which she examines this idea of companionate marriage, okay? Um, right, this is, in her words, quote, the Republican model for social and political relationships, right? So marriage itself, even though it was obviously a, a private relationship, right? It had public significance in the early republic, right? Um, so Lewis was able to trace what we call prescriptive literature, right? Magazines, um, novels, essays, things like that, um, that kind of outlined expectations uh, for behavior for men and women, right? Which is especially important at this point in time, right? And here, Lewis argues that men and women should be seeking out companions, right? Partnerships um, that are reflective of Republican values, right? This is a relatively more egalitarian uh, relationship than in prior generations, right? There is still a gendered hierarchy within marriage, or at least the expectation of it, right? But there's 
the argument that women, if they kind of reflect this Republican virtue and this um, pseudo-egalitarianism in marriage, then their husbands will be better citizens for it, then the republic itself will be better for it, right? So you can see these anxieties really um, <laughs> permeating all levels of society, right? Even these domestic roles, okay? Um, now, all three of these roles are gendered, right? You can see that in the terminology that each of these historians chooses to identify here. Um, but these two ideas, Republican motherhood and companionate marriage, especially for our purposes in this class, I want to underscore that they are kind of contingent upon two things, right? One is an expectation of heteronormative sexuality, right? Um, the second is, of course, women's reproductive capacity, right? So both that they are engaging in these heteronormative marital relationships um, and also that they will have children, right? And then pass on these values within their marriage and to their children, right? These roles are specific to women. They are gendered. They are, quote unquote, within the proper realm of feminine comportment, of feminine behavior, Right? So by and large, these roles are not going to be seen as problematic, right? because they are seen as kind of befitting these social cultural roles that women were already filling. They are merely a political extension of them. Right? It is instead going to be this first designation that I discussed these female politicians. That's where we're going to really run into a problem, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, so I want to, before I talk about that backlash, have you take a look at this political cartoon from the year 1807, right? There's a lot going on here. I know it's a little bright in here, so I don't know if you can see um, the kind of words that are written. But take a look for a minute and see what you think is, is going on here. Um, these early political cartoons are not very subtle in their messaging. Yeah, Katie. Burning, like, all the books. Okay, so can anybody see what the book says here? Anybody? So right here is written statutes, right? So they're specifically fanning the flames, burning statutes, burning the law, right? Representing this kind of rule of law being um, burned, right? Um, what else do we notice in the image? Yeah, Marcy. Well, at the bottom it says improved liberty, so that could represent, like, the United, the new United States. Right, this, this new sense of liberty, right, that needs to be nourished. And what's the other implication, the other side of that? What's happening? Infant liberty. By mother mob. Yeah, by mother mob, right? So this sense of democracy, right, we're going to talk about being potentially... Um, fueling or being fueled by mob rule is very dangerous. And what you probably are also not able to read here, on her breasts are written whiskey and rum, right? So fueling liberty, um, nourishing liberty, young liberty uh, with, with liquor, right? Um, and right, there's, a, there's a lot going on here, but what I want to kind of underscore too is that Right? Besides the anxiety about the future of the republic and the potential dangers of democracy, right, women as a political symbol are also going to be increasingly manipulated in this way. Um, so, yeah, lots, lots that we could continue to unpack. But I want to, bless you, I want to talk about here the backlash that ensues against women's expanded political roles. Okay. Um, Right. At first, as I said, 
both major political parties are really going to seek out and cultivate um, the political allegiances of women, right? Because they can add virtue, right? They can be a legitimating force, right? Um, But over time, um, women are going to be seen less as signifiers of political virtue and more as tools or objects of attack, right? As you can see in this image, right? Um, But certainly women are going to be be used as symbols of attack, but also there will be attack against these female politicians themselves for their political activities. Okay. Um, Right, many Americans at this time, uh, as with ours, um, decry the growing partisan divides, right? A familiar refrain throughout American history, right? So in the prescriptive literature, um, over time we start to see a change in tone, right? Um, From arguing about the benefits of having women in this public political realm, in these kinds of limited roles, Um, And instead arguing that women should instead remove themselves from partisan politics, right? Um, That it is no longer um, virtuous for them to be in this public political realm, um, particularly because of the rise of partisanship, right? This increased partisan divide, right? Instead, the literature is going to argue that women were better suited politically to be executing their um, domestic familial political roles, right? The role of Republican wife, of Republican mother, right? That they could somehow mediate or soften the increasingly harsh and competitive world of partisan politics, right? Which was um, becoming more the purview of men exclusively, Right. Um, So we can kind of see this um, kind of rejection of female politicians beginning as early as 1819 with an economic crisis. Um, But really, it's going to continue through Jackson's presidency, which we'll talk about later today. Okay. Um, It's also, I think, important for us to recognize that these decades of the early republic Um, are also a period of uh, expanding democracy, right? Small-D democracy in which more people are getting access to traditional levers of power, right? And of course, this is limited, right? But um, largely talking about the expansion of the right to vote among white men, right? Um, Over time state after state will kind of knock down these expectations of uh, property ownership for voting, right, which will expand the white male voter base. Um, And while we see expansion of democracy in that way, we're also going to see um, not just democracy, but political power contracting for other groups. And, And women are among those who see a kind of loss of political power in some ways. Right. Um, So to kind of give you an example of this, right, those outdoor um, festivities, the um, party activities that would happen in public where women and men are kind of participating together. um, Increasingly, these um, party meetings are going to happen behind closed doors. Right. With leading party officials who are largely men. Right. Um, And 
the parties themselves are going to work specifically to cultivate voters, right? To cultivate the allegiance of voters um, of whom women were not considered a part, right? So you can see there where the expansion of the white male vote, right, really kind of diminishes a lot of the ways that women had exercised political power, right? So this is one way we, where we start to see those uh, doors of opportunity closing for women. Um, but also, women's political power is increasingly seen as a threat, right? Um, right? These female politicians were seen as violating the boundaries of proper feminine comportment. Um, they are challenging male authority. They are eroding the boundaries between the sexes, right, that are believed to be very, um, very hard and very distinct at this point in time. Right, so essentially they are, or were perceived to be a threat to the patriarchal social order, right, the, the gendered status quo, and therefore um, the way in which the government society itself was structured, right, around these patriarchal power structures, okay. Um, and this should kind of be familiar to us as well. I think we're going to see um, the role of science um, really changing understandings of expectations of gender comportment, right, that we, we've been talking about for several weeks now, right? So ooh, if we can remember back several weeks now, uh, maybe our very first discussion where we talked about gender essentialism. Anybody remember what that meant or perhaps relative to the social construction was gender essentialism? Yeah, Katie, you want to give it a shot? between the genders. Right, that, that gender, that sex is kind of immutable, right? It is unchangeable, right? It is essentialist in that nature, right? In contrast to the social constructionist view where gender is a, a social construct or cultural construct, essentially, right? So we are going to see, um, especially in this kind of transatlantic world, um, emerging ideas about biology, anatomy, and, and medicine, which we've been talking a lot about, right? The changes in the ideas of, of who um, ought to be um, <laughs> taking care of women's reproductive health, for example, right? Um, but science lended a legitimacy, right, to this gendered essentialism, right? That um, the differences between the sexes were fixed in nature, right, and that men and women were biologically, anatomically unequal, right? Um, and again, this probably shouldn't be so surprising to you based on what we've read so far, but, right, the assumption is that women are, you know, physically weaker than men, right, that they are um, more emotional, um, and thus the flip side of that is that they are less rational, Right, um, and that is kind of inherent in their biological makeup. Right, these assumptions. Um, so, therefore, like to follow along with this uh, line of thinking, women's intellect was limited, um, and their bodies and minds um, basically made them less fit for governing. Right, for being in positions of power of leadership. Right, and of course, the flip side of that is that men were then the ones that were fit to be voting, to be governing to be leading, right? So all of these things kind of combine over the course of a decade or two, right, where we see um, changing assumptions about what women's proper role in political activity is, right? Um, 
So with all that being said, I want to spend the rest of the time talking about this uh, scandal in Andrew Jackson's cabinet, which is sometimes dubbed the Eaton Affair. Um, it's also sometimes known as the Petticoat War, <laughs> um, right, where you can really see the gender dynamics in that term. Um, but again, I think that the Eaton Affair is really emblematic of, of everything we've been discussing thus far today, right? Um, and I think you can argue that the Eaton Affair is simultaneously a factor contributing to this changing political culture, but also a symptom of it, right? It's also a result of it. So um, it's kind of happening in the late 1820s, early 1830s, right? Right around the time this backlash is really um, rejecting the idea of female politicians. Okay, now before we jump in, I need to give you a bit of a primer on what Washington political society was like in the early 19th century, in some ways very similar to Washington today, um, in other ways a bit different, okay? Um, and in one way, I really want to emphasize the important role that women had in early Washington, right, in the politics of early Washington. Um, and this goes along with the need to cultivate a new national identity, right, a new patriotic sentiment, right? Washington as the capital where leaders would gather, where leaders would make laws. Um, women were the leaders in Washington society in the sense of um, many of the social events that they um, would organize, right? Um, and I don't mean that in a kind of belittling way. These social events are really critical to the functioning of this political society, right, where people are interacting, right, and where even the kind of ritual and ceremony of politics, of patriotism, is orchestrated by women, right? Um, so some of the best examples of this are Dolly Madison um, and Louisa Catherine Adams, who are among our very first first ladies. Um, and they tried to model Washington um, as a capital city like those of Europe, right, of the old world, um, that was very aristocratic in nature. Um, you know, they were hoping in modeling their kind of political activities off of European society that it would be a kind of legitimating force on the international stage, right? This is a new young nation, right? Cultivating um, dip diplomatic relationships especially is important, right? So they really focused heavily on ceremony and ritual and kind of political theater, right? That symbolism is really important here, okay? Um, so as Washington society is being built, figuratively and metaphorically, um, we're going to see kind of two camps emerging. Um, democracy, the idea of democracy, very early on in the Republic, really in the wake of uh, the immediate wake of the Revolution, um, had been seen as a danger, right? We saw the image, right, that mother mob, right, is going to be overtaking American society, right? Um, much of um, you know, figures like John Adams especially really feared what they called the excesses of democracy, too much democracy that might lead to anarchy, mobs, right? So... Over time, as we get closer to uh, the Jacksonian period, um, more and more people are seeing the benefits of democracy, namely those people who are seeing expanded rights as a result of that democracy. 
right? So those folks who are seeing the benefits of expanded democracy are going to look at the aristocratic nature of American politics and be really fearful of that, right? That um, focusing on this kind of aristocratic political culture will lead to corruption, will lead to the overthrow of a Republican form of government, right? Will lead to tyranny, talking in very extreme terms, of course. Right, so we have those pro-democracy, anti-aristocracy folks on one side. But then on the other side, you do have folks who are really interested in cultivating this aristocratic sense of political culture because they fear democracy, right? Because they are really looking at the dangers inherent in democracy as they saw it, that it would be mob-like, right? And that there's, um, there's this, there is such a thing as having too much democracy and that it can be dangerous, right? So this is the society that the Eaton Affair happens in, right? Um, divided, it's partisan, uh, and of course, it is increasingly anxious over women's political roles. So that should set the scene for us today. Okay, um, so I'll start the story here by introducing a woman named Margaret O'Neill. That's O apostrophe N-E-A-L-E, Margaret O'Neill, who was affectionately affectionately known as Peggy. Um, She grew up in Washington City. She was the daughter of a hotel owner. Um, And as such, she grew up around some really important political figures who would stay in or socialize at her father's hotel, right? Um, Many wrote of and spoke of her as a very beautiful woman, um, perhaps even alluring, right? Dangerous, seductive beauty, right? And Peggy herself was quite aware of this, right? She would write in her or excuse me, autobiography years later, uh, when I was still in pantalettes and rolling hoops with other girls, I had the attentions of men, young and old, enough to turn a girl's head. So she is self-aware, right? She knows uh, that people consider her to be beautiful, right? And aware, potentially, of the potential power that she has in that beauty that she could use, okay? So... Peggy, as I said, grew up in her father's hotel. Um, She will marry a man named John Timberlake in 1816. Okay, Um, and he works as a purser on a ship. Essentially, he takes care of the money. Um, But as such, he spends a lot of their marriage at sea, right? He's not around. Um, So while he is at sea for much of their marriage, Peggy lives with her parents in the hotel, Um, along with uh, her and Timberlake's uh, two young daughters. And it was at the hotel where Peggy first met a man named John Eaton in 1818. Eaton was a young widower and a newly minted Tennessee senator. Uh, And this is how he came to know Andrew Jackson, who was himself also from Tennessee. Right? And over the course of the ensuing decade, right, they would grow closer. Um, and it, to be clear, also Peggy and John would become quite close with Andrew Jackson and his wife Rachel as well. Right? They came to know each other quite well. Right. So Washington at the time was a very small city, uh, but the rumor mill functioned quite well. <laughs> um, so word of Peggy uh, and John's relationship, uh, as it were, had drawn quite a bit of attention, um, which 
then culminated in the shocking news of Timberlake's death by suicide in 1828. Now, some of this gossip that had been circulating would attribute Timberlake's suicide to an affair that was happening between Peggy and John Eaton. Okay. And the timeline is important here, right? Dies by suicide in 1828, the same year that Andrew Jackson is first elected president, right? Later that year. Now, Jackson um, is... Uh, elected, at least in part, um, because of the massive expansion of the franchise to unpropertied white men, right? Jackson really fancied himself um, a man of the people, right? Um, And that was especially in stark contrast to his opponent, the then-president John Quincy Adams, right? Who was pegged as being um, an out-of-touch, elitist, wannabe aristocrat. Right. Here are these two political camps again. Right. The kind of pro-democracy man of the people versus the kind of aristocratic society folks of Washington. Right. These two camps that emerge. Right. So Jackson will be elected with the support of many of these new voters. But he certainly had a lot of critics as well. Right. And not just in Washington, uh, but he's going to confront those Washington critics head on um, when he moves to the city to start his administration. Okay. I want to highlight the members of Andrew Jackson's first cabinet here. Excuse me. Right. Don't feel the need to copy all these guys down. I just want to kind of highlight a few here because they'll come up uh, again. And first, of course, is John Henry Eaton, right, Um, who will become Secretary of War, kind of predecessor to the Secretary of Defense. Um, You may recognize Martin Van Buren, right, who will eventually become president himself. He's serving as Secretary of State, the nation's chief diplomat. Uh, William Berry will also be important for us. He serves as the Postmaster General, right? Um, And some of these other folks are um, going to be important um, from a position of being in the opposition, okay? Um, So... Jackson nominates uh, men who largely did not have much experience in national government. They really didn't have a national political profile. Um, They certainly were not really part of this Washingtonian elite that had been um, constructed. Um, And, of course, the most controversial appointment is John Eden, right? Um, Shortly after Jackson is elected... Eaton wrote to the then-president-elect that he intended to marry Peggy, right? This is after her first husband had passed, right? Um, And really, Jackson is supportive of this match, of this marriage. Um, He, right, had become quite close with the two, he and his wife. Um, (laughs) And he, probably naively in hindsight, believed that the marriage would put to bed these uh, damaging rumors about Peggy and put them uh, behind everyone really involved, right? Uh, So they did marry in January of 1829, but probably unsurprisingly, the rumors persisted, right? Um, One man quipped that Eaton has just married his mistress and the mistress of 11 dozen others, right? So you can kind of see the attitudes towards Peggy are really solidifying here before Jackson has even taken the oath of office, right? Um, And is very much going to plague uh, his first term in office. 
Right, so Peggy is really going to become a liability for Jackson, uh, political liability, um, right? At this point in time, or by the time he takes office, um, he has lost his wife, Rachel. Um, she died of a heart attack. Uh, and Jackson is going to very publicly blame the campaign, right, especially the tactics of John Quincy Adams' side, um, right? There were... Rumors that persisted that uh, Rachel Jackson's uh, marriage had not legally ended before she married Andrew Jackson. Um, and these kinds of rumors circulated uh, during the campaign, right? And Jackson would attribute them to uh, contributing to her death, right? So Jackson is without a wife. Um, his secretary of state and chief diplomat, Martin Van Buren, was also a widower by this point in time. So some believe that if, with the official position of first lady being empty, that Peggy Eaton might fill that role, right? Might be the symbolic head of Washington society, right? Um, to be clear, she would not. It's going to be uh, Jackson's late wife's niece, Emily Donaldson, who will fill that role. Um, but there is a lot of anxiety that this woman, right, is going to be... Um, you know, organizing parties and events at the White House in the name of the administration, right? Now, some of these uh, fears and anxieties about <laughs> too much democracy are going to seem to come true. Um, as you can see here in this artistic rendering of Inauguration Day at the White House, um, famously, it really got out of control. Some historians refer to it as a riot. But a lot of these new voters are going to come to Washington, to the White House, to experience the inauguration and to try to meet the man they put into office. Right. Um, some historians have uncovered evidence of this day that the, the riot only ended when they were uh, able to put bowls of, of liquor and punch out on the White House lawn. So people left the building. Right. And Andrew Jackson basically has to escape out the back somewhere. Right. Um, right. So this is like an auspicious start. Um, and in fact, the women of Washington's elite society um, are going to take matters into their own hands at the inaugural ball, where almost to a person they refuse to acknowledge Peggy's presence, to speak with her, to even be introduced to her, right? Very much drawing a line in the sand here. Um, just one cabinet couple is going to interact with the Eatons, and that is the Berries, right? William Berry, the Postmaster General, right? Um, but Washington society women are basically telling everyone that's a member of this society that they have to pick sides, Right? You're either with us, right, with these well-established, well-connected, um, uh, elite society women, or you're with the Eatons, right, um, about which there were a, a number of rumors, right? Um, so as uh, Jackson attempts to get his presidency started here, gossip about the Eatons is really going to hover over Washington like a fog, um, and in many ways, it infects most realms of political society, certainly of Jackson's administration, right? In an attempt, again, to try to move beyond the rumors, Jackson himself is going to hire investigators to look into these rumors. Um, and importantly, he hopes to uh, provide evidence that he can use to refute them, right? Right, now again, this, this may seem like 
you know, some gossipy women kind of making stuff up here. But it is really central to a lot of the political divisions, both within Jackson's administration, but within the country at large, too. Okay. Um, so I already said the Berries are really going to be on Team Eaton here. Um, but Martin Van Buren is the only other cabinet member, right, to uh, socialize regularly and publicly with the Eatons, right? And I think it's important, again, to mention that he is a widower, right? So uh, his wife is not participating um, in the exclusion of the Eatons in this way, right? His position as Secretary of State is going to be important, right? He is the nation's chief diplomat. He often is hosting foreign diplomats and important dignitaries, Right? And because he invited the Eatons, right, the Eatons were a part of that society, right? which causes further conflict within the administration. Right? But Van Buren here was making a strong political statement in including them, in inviting them. Okay, much of the opposition to the Eatons um, was kind of orchestrated by a woman named Floride Calhoun, who was the wife of John C. Calhoun, who was Andrew Jackson's vice president. Um, and if you've taken any early American history classes, John C. Calhoun is probably a name that is familiar to you, uh, and probably not for good reason. Um, so as Jackson's first term wore on, um, we're going to see policy issues really forging a wedge between Jackson and Calhoun. Okay. Um, one of the major issues is a set of tariffs right? that Jackson is in favor of that Calhoun argued gave preference to northern industrial economies while disadvantaging southern states' economies, which were, of course, dependent upon enslaved labor, right? Um, One of the things Calhoun is probably most well-known for in popular history is his very vocal support for the theory of nullification, Um, Nullification is the idea that a state uh, could nullify or reject national laws that they found to be unconstitutional. Um, And to be clear, I don't believe there's ever been a single court from the lower levels all the way to SCOTUS that has recognized uh, legitimacy of nullification. Um, But it's important because obviously it will become quite important as we get closer to the Civil War, this idea of nullification. Right. So... Jackson becomes the kind of biggest symbolic opponent, real opponent, to Andrew Jackson within his administration, right? Um, And Jackson believes, essentially, that Calhoun is making the Eaton affair worse on purpose, right? That he is fanning the flames of these rumors with his wife, but also within the cabinet, to improve his own political prospects, right? Um, So we're going to see growing internal division within the Jackson administration for obvious reasons, right? So aside from these ideas, right, particularly Jackson believing that Calhoun is is doing all of this on purpose, right, to improve his own situation, um, there are also rumors circulating that Eaton himself is masterminding a way to remove the kind of pro-Calhoun, anti-Eaton elements of the cabinet, right? Ingham and Branch, who were on the slide previously. Right, so this division is going to persist to such a level that eventually we're going to see some members of his cabinet resigning, which will then have a snowball effect, okay? So it was first Martin Van Buren and John Eaton who offered 
to resign, right? To, to try to give Jackson a fresh start here, recognizing the untenable political situation, right? And because they resigned first, right, it then wasn't seen as politically motivated for Jackson to ask the rest of his cabinet to resign or much of the rest of his cabinet Right. The one remaining uh, cabinet member is going to be William Barry, the postmaster general. Um, but this isn't going to be the end of the political careers of those men involved who did resign. Right. Um, John Eaton will eventually become the first territorial governor of Florida. Um, and interestingly, later he will become a minister to Spain which means that Peggy is going to be present in a lot of the royal courts of Europe, which is just kind of a good snub to the women that excluded her, right? Um, John C. Calhoun is eventually going to resign as vice president uh, before the end of the first term here. Uh, And he will later be elected um, as a senator from South Carolina, right, where he continued his crusade in favor of nullification and in expanding the power and scope of the institution of slavery, right? Martin Van Buren will replace Calhoun, uh, become the vice president, and then, of course, later be elected president himself after Jackson serves two terms, right? But all of this kind of portends really ominous signs of the future of politics, um, especially leading up to the Civil War. Okay. Now, lest we all think this is just a matter of petty gossip and politics, I do want to kind of tease out the key significant elements of this story, right? Why does it matter? What's the larger picture here, okay? Right, but as I said, I really think that this story is in fact emblematic of a lot of what we were discussing today. Um, First is the important role of gossip um, in American society, in American politics, right? And this is of course something that we have talked about at least a bit um, in previous weeks. Right, especially relative to it being um, a kind of primary source for analysis. Right, um, gossip is really interesting because it's kind of simultaneously public and private. Right, or it has public and private functions certainly. And in our society, as well as in early Washington society, it's a really uh, potent political force. Right, it is a, a currency of source, uh, sorts in politics. But gossip is often neglected, right, as a kind of historical source, as a primary source. So what is it about gossip that makes it often neglected by historians in terms of being studied? Right, so it's not necessarily, it's certainly not easily verifiable, right? It's, it's much harder to verify. Yeah, Jackie? like your own personal bias, whatever you say, so it's not really reliable. Yeah, right. So it's certainly, I mean, especially in the context of this, right, we can see the ways in which it isn't reliable. Yeah, Jay? Going off of that, a lot of the stuff that's said is hearsay, so it's not credible. Yeah, right. So lots of questions around the credibility of the source, even from a practical standpoint. Think about a historian who wants to utilize gossip. What's the kind of challenge there? Yeah, Sarah? Usually it's like spread orally, like people talking to one another. Yeah, right? it's really hard to identify, hard to locate, right? Um, this is 
Not necessarily as big of a problem when we're talking about this massive scale of political gossip, right? Certainly the sources we talked about earlier in the semester, it's really hard to identify until we get these depositions in court, right? But here you can see, this is just an excerpt from a piece uh, in the Essex Gazette in May of 1831 that details, right? The, there's something like 14 steps here about like, oh, and then this happened and this happened. So the public is reading about this. And I will say that both Eaton and Calhoun are publishing letters publicly, right, to um, kind of air their grievances in the newspaper for the public to read, right? So it's, it is difficult to identify, um, but gossip is often gendered, right? The assumption that it is the kind of the realm of women, right? It, it has a link to femininity or sexuality, right? And that it's, it's, trivial, right, relative to these traditional levers of power, right? So there's a kind of sexism inherent in rejecting these as really important sources of historical analysis. Right, of course, this is, it could not be more further from the truth, um, right? So rumors of Peggy Eaton's sexual and marital misdeeds really fuels political dissent and not just from women, right? Men are involved in this political gossip as well. Right. Um, But what I think is important to note here, even though both men and women are engaging in political gossip, it's in some ways more important for women because as time goes on, those traditional levers of political power, of political expression are going to be increasingly close to them. Right. So gossip becomes more important. Right. As a social political currency. Now, another kind of uh, element of significance I want to underscore here is, of course, this increased cultural anxiety about women's political power, women's roles in politics, right? Most of the country knows very little about what's going on in Andrew Jackson's inner circle until it hits the papers, right? Then a lot of local papers are going to pick up the national news as some of this gossip is going to leak out. Right. So the American public learns through these newspapers that um, a woman was the cause at the center of this conflict. Right. Um, That she uh, well, I should also say, too, that this is also going to be unsurprising to you, but these papers are going to really lean into these kind of well-worn and tired tropes of gender and sexuality. Right. Right. Peggy is at the center here, according to these accounts. Um, she orchestrated this whole uh, cabinet resignation uh, with her feminine wiles, right? Perhaps she had some larger devious plot in store, right? It becomes very dramatic, right? But she is at the center here, right? Um, and this excerpt here, uh, at least one portion says, uh, quote, behold then this delicate and admirable machinery and its worker. Mrs. E was the main string. Jackson was the barrel round which it wound and her husband filled up the subordinate parts of the mechanism, right? So really centering Peggy in the dissolution of the cabinet and this political rupture, right? Um, of course, Peggy exercised very little political power in this situation. Um, It was instead those that dismissed her, that excluded her, that gossiped about her, that really were the ones that brought down the cabinet um, from the inside out. Um, But what I want to argue is that Peggy becomes a kind of avatar for Jackson, 
right? People who want to critique Jackson will instead critique Peggy as a reflection of the administration, right? So in one part, we're going to see women, right, who are seeking still to have a legitimate political voice and not be chastised for being unwomanly, can critique Eaton, right, for herself being um, kind of uh, going outside the proper boundaries of feminine behavior, right? So that's a way that women can appropriately critique Jackson. Um, but as democratic sentiment is becoming more popular, right, it's, it's uh, certainly less popular to critique democracy, right, those who are critical of an expanded democracy, again, want to critique Jackson for kind of being a harbinger of it, but use Peggy as this avatar, right? So really what we're seeing here is that these critiques of Peggy are really an extension of critiques of Jackson from different angles, right? And she becomes the kind of symbolic center here, right? They critique and target Peggy for her lack of propriety, her immodesty, when the real target is, in many ways, democracy itself. Okay. So, as we've seen today, women have long been political actors imbued with influence and power in American history, right? They exercise their political power in public and in private, um, and were certainly critical players in the development of a new nation, Right? But as we've also seen, they became symbols of the elements of an excess of democracy and egalitarianism. Right? They become this avatar, this way to critique these larger systems of power, um, particularly as these forces could destabilize the long-held white patriarchal power structures, right? especially as democracy is expanding. Right? We've seen how and why this backlash to women's inclusion in the polity occurred. Um, but I do want to emphasize that women would not and did not go quietly, um, as I'm sure many of you know. Right, um, It's not many years later that some women are going to organize collectively to push not just for the right to vote, um, but also for abolition and other social reforms. Um, and really, the kind of through line, I think, of, of women's political power is that they have always been navigating these limitations on their political power and agency, right? And these limitations were often grounded in assumptions about their physical, their emotional and intellectual capabilities, as well as their reproductive roles, right? Think about the idea of hysterical, right, being a very explicit gendered critique, Right? So despite these gendered and sexist assumptions about politics, women have uh, always persisted in carving out political power for themselves wherever they could in spite of these limitations um, throughout the course of American history and obviously continue to do so today. All right. So uh, thank you for your attention, and uh, I will see you guys on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>